Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Quaybog Church podcast. At the end of this episode, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel or check us out on Facebook. That way you'll have access to fresh content every week. But most importantly, we hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey because our mission here at Quaybog is to help you worship, connect, and serve. Enjoy! So this is the last Sunday, technically, in Letting Go of Christmas, this series where uh, I'm trying to get us to shake loose some of these things that uh, we associate with Christmas that don't bring any joy, they don't bring any hope, they don't bring any peace or love. They just bring a lot of stress. Or sometimes they're just parts of Christmas, again, that are completely unrealistic, like we're going to talk about today, that are really like a, almost a whitewashed version of the real story. Because the real story of Christmas is really messy, and it's really painful, and it's really awkward. But we need to let those pieces stand that way so that we can appreciate the story. So that's where we're headed today. But first, though, uh, this series is an Advent series. And again, Advent is just a, a Latin word, Adventus, that means coming or arrival. So when you're celebrating Christmas, you're celebrating the first arrival of Jesus. But then you're also remembering that he is God. He made promises about coming back. So we look forward to that time, too, when he comes back and makes everything right. And there's a, this, this full story that's involved in the, in the arrival of Jesus. And to do that, we have these four candles that we light. So first, we started several weeks ago now, four, with uh, hope. This one we based off of Isaiah chapter 9. It's always a little tentative, right, when I'm holding the candle down. It's like, oh, is he going to do it? Is it going to happen? Um, and so we did hope because there was 700 years before Jesus, there were these promises that were starting to be very, very loud and bold about this Messiah. And so they were, they were in a position where they were suffering as a nation, Israel, Old Testament Israel. And so they needed some kind of hope to look forward to, that it wouldn't always be this way. So Isaiah starts to speak about this Messiah, and by the time Jesus shows up, they're pretty amped up looking for this Messiah and this hope that everybody wanted, right? They misunderstood the hope because they didn't realize it'd be much like we read this morning in our call to worship, it'd be Isaiah 53, a suffering servant that we would get the first time. And people wanted a ruling military leader, what they got was Isaiah 53. I'm here as the Lamb of God to pay for the sins of the world. But it was the hope that, that Jesus fulfilled. Now, the second weekend, we talked about what? What's that second weekend? Peace, right? Peace. That one is a big one this time of year because, again, there's a lot of holiday tradition at the end of the year that does not bring us any peace. That does not point to the Prince of Peace. And so we took some time to talk about that. But that's the birth announcement, which we'll read again today, he was, it was announced that he would be bringing peace on earth, right? We just got to singing about it. That was part of the mission. Why would he need to bring peace on earth? Well, because if you've lived on this earth a little bit, you realize it's kind of chaotic. It's kind of crazy. It's unfair. It's dangerous sometimes. There's like, we're going to need that peace from God. Then last Sunday, we looked at joy. And we put that in the context of sharing the generosity that we have in Christ, right? That, that joy that fills us, the joy that should be a part of this season, is something we should be able to share consistently all the time if you're a follower of Jesus. And then today, the last one, what do we got for today? Love, love right? Love. Love is a misunderstood word. Um, we mostly attach it to romance and or hallmark, right? And it's much, much more than that, as we're going to see this morning. It's much more compelling than that. Now, so in this series, what we've been trying to do is, again, set the story of Christmas in the reality of what the story is. 
what it means, what are some of the details we're going to look at today, and how are they way different from what most of us kind of think about when it comes to Christmas. So one verse that we, we used to do this uh, to set the story in context was how Jesus instructed his own disciples. So every single Sunday I've shared this verse. Context. Jesus just uh, resurrected. His disciples think he's dead. They think all hope is lost. Jesus catches up with two of these disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he does this with them. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So when Jesus came, he understood the Christmas story, as it would eventually become called, that that's not just the story. That's not the purpose. That's not the end. And his resurrection wasn't even the end. So what he did for these two disciples was really cool. He went all the way back to Genesis, and he had this little Bible study, a quick Bible study to say, hey, look, my story is part of a much bigger story. And that's how I always want us to remember Christmas, because that's how Jesus understood his story in context of the bigger story. And that's Advent. Now, our Isaiah 9 passage, I share this every single Sunday because I don't want us to forget who it is we're celebrating. For a child, and notice how this builds and it crescendos. For a child will be born for us. A little bit bigger. A son will be given to us. And now we're really building. And the government will be on his shoulders. Right? This is a really important promise for them when Israel was being crushed by Rome. Right? Like, this was a pretty big promise. Right? This is what they were looking for. But then it really crescendos in verse 7. It says, He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So this, I don't want us to forget. This is who Christmas is about, right? Not just baby Jesus. Don't trap Jesus as just a baby. He's much, much more than that. And the story of Advent, the real story of Christmas, is much more compelling. It's much more compelling if we consider the totality of that story and all the dirty, awkward details of the Christmas story. Now, some of the things I've been trying to ask as we've gone along to get us to let go of some things from Christmas, number one, we looked at this. Is Christmas an idol that's destroying Christmas? Now, what I meant by that, if you weren't there for that Sunday, is that Christmas is a monster, right? It's much different than even Easter, right? We don't build Easter up the way that we build Christmas up, and it's not been hijacked in the way that I think the Christmas story has. And so Christmas, it can be this gigantic monster that we give a lot of attention to for about the details of Christmas, but very little detail to the meaning. You know, like, we, we just don't do that necessarily. Like, we don't give, like, we don't get down into, like, the understanding of the meaning as much as we do just, like, oh, oh, we got the dinners, the parties, the gifts, like, all these things, vacation, whatever. And that gets all of our energy. And that becomes an idol. When we do that, what I said the first week is that you end up in a place where you're going to worship Christmas instead of Christ. That's, I think, where a lot of the stress comes from, is we begin to worship a holiday and everything that goes with it, and we hope that it's going to bring us what we need, and it never does, right? Because Christmas morning, man, most Christmas mornings, they, they cannot live up to the hype. Even if it was snowing three feet on the ground, that's a big check in the box for Kyle, right? Like, even if I got everything that I could ever want, it's like, that day's going to come and go. And there's no love, love up to the hype if I'm worshiping a holiday instead of the one it's about. Right? And then the second Sunday, we looked at this. Can gifts distract you from the real gift? I said each week, that seems like a real softball question, but the facts are as they are. Uh, I've said in that sermon that the average American thinks they're going to spend about $850 on Christmas presents. $850 is what nationwide polls have done. That's what people said. Now, the problem with that is national retailers know us better than we know ourselves. The average American is going to spend about $4,300 between November and December. 
Well, how do they know that? Because that's that's three to four percent less than what we did, or more than what we did last year, right? So they're projecting we're going to spend about that much because this is what we did last year. Problem with that: seventy-five percent of Americans are going to put that forty-three hundred dollars on a credit card. One in four Americans are still paying off last Christmas. I don't think that's what the Prince of Peace has in mind for us. And I know it's not. This is not just like a non-Christian thing. This is an American thing. Two hundred twenty-two million consumers that are going to be in the market in November, December, are going to be doing this. And so it applies just as much to Christians as well. And again, I don't think that's what the Prince of Peace had in mind for us. But again, worshiping Christmas instead of Christ. And then last Sunday. Uh, we looked at, is Christmas giving bad? So is seasonal generosity a bad thing? No, to just say it simply. But I did have us think about two things in light of that. Seasonal giving is a great thing. But first, I want you to consider, being a joyful giver is a choice. And it should be a lifestyle for those that follow Jesus. Because both of which share the joy we have by reflecting the Savior that we belong to. Right? So, making a plan was the second thing. Like, we have to actually make a sustainable plan for generosity all the time. Like, our generosity has to be the first part of our budget, not the last. Right? We've got to be intentional about that so that we can pick maybe one or two things a month to do. We can be, just be generous in a sustainable way. Right? And if, and if Christmas is the only time that you're thinking about being generous as a follower of Jesus, as reflecting the one that the holiday is about, that's not good. And that's something that we need to let go. Right? So there's these, again, there's these things that we, I think, can choose to let go about Christmas because they don't really have anything to do with Christmas. Not that we can't do them. I just went up and put a, another string of lights on my house because, man, I like lights. Right? I like Christmas decorations. Not saying any of that stuff is bad, but does that drive the holiday for you? Right? Does the gift giving and receiving, does that drive the holiday for you? If you got up Christmas morning and there was nothing there, it's like, is it still a holiday or is it just wrong? You know, it's like, what do we attach to it that brings real meaning to the holiday? So those are the kind of things that we've been trying to consider, all under the very personal question, how do you need to let go of Christmas this year? Because there are, again, there are components of Christmas that don't bring any joy, don't bring any hope, don't bring any love or peace, and yet we do them. And yet we bring on the stress, and yet we do all these extras that maybe we don't have the bandwidth for, and it's like, maybe I need to let go of some things, or maybe I need to let go of expectations this year. Maybe I need to let go of some hurt this year from family so that we can actually just get together and not like have to fight every time we're together. Maybe I need to be the first one that just says, okay, I'm just going to let that go. Not that it's right, but maybe I just need to let it go so that I can move on with my life. So there's certain things around this time of the year I think that we need to have the freedom to release. So then my, my last one, for, for this day, uh, is don't let perfect blind you from beautiful. So what do I mean by that? Well, it's a little like week one with the perfection of the holiday, but today I want you to consider the, that picture that we have of the Christmas story that is so sterile, is so clean, so unoffensive, that it has nothing really to do with the Christmas story. Like, when you think of the nativity scene, what does that look like in your mind? What does that conjure up? Because we need to really be able to consider the messiness of the actual story and the pain that's there. Because that pain and that position that they found themselves in, because they were nobodies. Joseph and Mary were nobodies. And they went to a town where nobody was looking for them, nobody wanted them, and nobody cared that they were there. That's the creator of the universe 
saying, I'm going to come into this story in this very specific way. And that says something very, very important about God. It says something very important about his mission here on earth. And if we take the Christmas story and just make it this cutesy little nativity scene story, and we try to remove the things that are awkward and the shame and just the, the miserable, like, just imagine being around animals, right? If you've been around animals, you know they're nasty. They, they're not thinking about your feelings, right? They're going to make noises when they shouldn't, right? They're going to make messes because they're, like, somewhat mild animals. And just think about that. And then everything else, all the other details we're going to try to consider this morning, that if we take all of that out, you're going you're gonna to miss what God is saying about himself. But that's the story we've been given. It's, again, this kind of whitewashed version of Christmas. It's just all pretty, and it's nicely packaged, and it's just not that way. Because I want you to consider this next picture here. Right? A lot of people, it's like, this is the nativity scene. Like, there was a photographer there at the scene or whatever, and he's like, all right, guys, gather up. And even the donkey was like, oh, what's up? Right? And you got the little cherub, half-naked angel babies with, you know, the sensitive parts covered up, because that wouldn't be inappropriate. It's like, why are they doing, like, and the little tootie-toots, like, what's going on with the scene here, right? And then you got baby Jesus, right, who, of course, we all know is of European descent, as was Mary. And you have, like, this, he looks so comfortable, right? And Mary, oh my gosh, she's all put together. She just had a baby in a cave. But she had time to, like, get herself all put together. But that's how Mary always looks, all peaceful. No, if you're a mom in here, you're going to look pretty disheveled in this moment. Hair all over the place, sweat, you know, sticking to your face. It's not going to be a pretty picture. But we have artwork that's just handed this down to us, and it's so serene. All the animals are just cuddled around, right? And it has nothing to do with what that scene actually would have been like. Like, this scene would have been not, that one For one, the wise men would not have been there. How do we know that? Well, the New Testament is written in Greek. When Jesus is born, it uses one very specific word for an infant. And then when the wise men come into the story later, two things. One, it uses a word that probably communicates uh, a, at least a toddler. So maybe he was two years old. And then they're in a house. So the wise men don't show up to the cave. The wise men show up probably two years later in a house. And they bring the gifts. And there wasn't three. You have no idea how many there were. But, of course, they gave three gifts. So there's just all the, this whole picture, everything about it. And then somebody else pointed out, they've got bales of hay in the back, which didn't really happen until about the 1800s, right? So nothing about our nativity scenes are really right. But it's this very nice, very comfortable, sterile, clean, unoffensive picture of the birth of the creator of the world. And if we do that, again, we're missing what God is saying about himself coming into the world in the way that he did under the circumstances in which he came to this planet. So that, again, this might be something that we need to let go of about Christmas. We may need to, we may need to, some of these pictures that are just so tidy, we need to get rid of those. And we need to consider that really the story, that it, the real story is much more compelling. The real story is much more powerful. And so there are some things that I do think we need to let go of because the real one, the real story is a story that's completely unfit for a king. Again, you get the mess of the animals. You got uninvited guests, the shepherds showing up. You got these strangers from the east a couple years later. Everything about the story, right? Going to a place where nobody knows about you, nobody expects you, nobody wants you, nobody cares about you. And Jesus 
Creator God is going to be born into that kind of a story. So, if we, if we sidestep, if we sidestep the awkwardness, you miss the transformative nature of the story. You miss the initial introduction of Jesus saying, I'm going to do everything differently. There's a world system, the way that people are, and who I am is completely different from that. I am on a mission of transformation. I'm on a mission from, from death to life kind of stuff. I'm on a mission, like heaven to hell kind of stuff. I am here to do something very specific. And even in his birth, and the announcement, and the setting, it's all transformative. It's all upside down. Because Jesus does give that opportunity. His love is what transforms. His love is what saves and what redeems us. And it's messy. His story is messy. And so we can't try to make it clean. Because if we look around the world right now, I know there's a lot of people that feel like, gosh, there's, like, there's not a lot of hope out there. But I, I don't feel like there's a lot of hope. I'm like, I look to the future, I'm all worried. And it's like, what the world is desperately gasping for is hope. It's love. It's peace. It's joy. It's the things that we're supposed to be celebrating at Christmas. It's the things that are promised to us by the Savior that this holiday is actually about. Those are the things that are offered, and there is real hope. And so this morning, I want to take a look. I want to just take a little journey through the Christmas story, but then also the implications of it. Because it's not just knowing the story. There are too many times we know the story, but we have no connection whatsoever to our hearts. And what Jesus intends for this story to do, again, is, is to transform us. It's the most important thing that's ever happened on earth. The Christmas story. So let's let it have the weight that it, that it deserves. So in Luke 2, we're going to read all of this, but in Luke 2, 1 through 20, you have the Christmas story. And in this story, there's the shame, there's the embarrassment, there's feeling like an outcast. Because you can imagine if, again, you're a teenage girl, you get pregnant, and you're like, oh, but it's not Joseph. That would have been bad enough. It's actually God who got me pregnant. Right? And now, when I'm like nine months pregnant, I'm going to head down on a 90-mile journey south through very dangerous territory to go to a place, again, where nobody's expecting me, nobody wants me there, and nobody cares whether or not we make it. Like, that's where we're going to. That's like the beginning of the story is a very, very shameful one for them. To be from Nazareth was a bad thing as well. To those people in that time, being from Nazareth was a very shameful, embarrassing thing. So there's nothing about Jesus, as we read. There's nothing about him that would just immediately attract you to him. I'm 5'10". Jesus, on a good day, would have been maybe 5'6". Like 120 pounds. The average Jewish guy back then was not a very big dude. So there's not going to be... He's not... Like, when we have our Renaissance art, Jesus looks like he's about 6'5 and works out daily in the gym, right? And he's obviously of European descent. And so you have this picture, which of course he's not, he's Middle Eastern, just as a spoiler alert, but he is not what we've been given most times by artists. And again, the story just is all made to look very beautiful, and it is a beautiful story, but the details of it are messy, and we need to let those details stand, and we need to let ourselves feel the tension, the uncomfortable awkwardness, and the pain, and the rejection, and the loneliness. Like, we need to let all those things stand. We need to feel it. Because that's, there's power in that, in the real story of Christmas. So they're going to do that. They're going to head down to Bethlehem. And when she gets there and births Jesus, we have famously, she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now remember, the manger is not a place. The manger scene is actually a feeding trough. So this next picture here, 
This is what a manger looks like. Back then, it's a rough hewn out of a rock, most likely. It's not the Tempur-Pedic bed that Jesus most often is shown in. Like, this this comfy little, like, everything is great. It would have been very uncomfortable. Joseph and Mary were dirt poor. We know that because the offering that they brought after Jesus' birth was one of the poor offerings. When you had a child, you were supposed to bring some bigger offerings, but God says in the Old Testament law, but if you're poor, you can bring birds. If you're really poor, you can bring just grain offerings. So since they brought one of the poorest offerings, we know they didn't have much. So they probably didn't have a whole lot to wrap baby Jesus in. Creator of the universe is being born into circumstances like this. We have to let that tension stand because it says something about God. It says something about who he is and what he's like. And then famously, the announcement to the shepherds is made in verse 8. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. So this is it. Like, this is the announcement. The King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Creator of the universe, baby, He's here. Let's do this. It's happening right now. It's going on. So you have this scene unfold before them, and what did it do to them? They were terrified. Have you ever wondered why they were terrified? I mean, the glory of the Lord shining probably is going to do some of that to you. But also, think about the image that we've been given. When you think about a picture or a scene of the shepherds being out in the field and the angel coming to make the announcement, it's probably, again, it's probably very beautiful, almost whitewashed, serene image of that. Like this, this next picture here. So it's just like you have this, of course, white lady coming from heaven. And she's got a little scroll, right? And you got all the little cherub babies up there, and they're playing their tutsis, right? And you got all this stuff, right? Again, has nothing to do with the Christmas story. Now, what do we see in Scripture about angels? In Scripture, every now and then, you'll have an angel that shows up and is earthbound. And that angel very often will be in human form because, you know, like, think of, like, Lot, right? Or think of Abraham. You have, like, these people that show up. But most angels in Scripture, do you have any idea how most angels in Scripture are described? Yeah. So, more than likely, what showed up in the sky above these simple little shepherds is things like this. This is what angels are described like. They have all these eyes all over these wings. Now, there's a lot of debate on what that means, what the eyes mean. Is it all seeing? Is it all, you know, whatever. It's not because they can't see everything. But this is one of the images that you have that's given in Scripture. Now, if this shows up and gives me an announcement, now I'm terrified, right? Now I'm not sleeping anymore, right? Like, this shows up, yeah, okay, now I know. But again, the story that we've been given is a very cartoony, very safe, very watered-down version. And there's real power in the details of what would actually been going down in Scripture and what would have brought terror and fear to these shepherds the way that it did? Another picture uh, that we have. Like, this is another artistic rendition of what's described in Scripture. Again, that shows up, and I'm terrified. That shows up. I'm the shepherds. I'm going to get some counseling about two weeks after this event. And I'm going to be talking to somebody about what I can't stop seeing at night, right? Or this next one. This is a cherub angel. This is what's described in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. You have these different faces. You have the lion. You have the eagle. You have all this kind of stuff. That is terrifying. That floats up in front of me with the glory of the Lord shining around him. I'm done for. Like, I am done, right? 
there's a good possibility that these types of images are what are a part of the birth announcement of Jesus Christ. It's much, much different, again, than the really safe, sterile, clean, unoffensive version of just these soft, almost peaceful. It's like, no, 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 they weren't feeling a peace at that moment. They were feeling what? Terrified. The, mu- the real story, again, much more compelling. Much more compelling. Verse 10, story goes on. But the angel said to them, don't, don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host. Now the heavenly host in the Bible often is translated as the angel army. So not only do you have potentially these very terrifying creatures that are floating in the sky talking to you, but now you have an army of them surrounding them. And here you are, a little shepherd, right? Think about that. Their worldview is really small, right? They didn't have HBO, right? They didn't have Netflix, right? They didn't have what we have today where it's just like, okay, no. Like, they, 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 they were just outside their realm of thinking completely. There was no frame of reference for them to understand what they were seeing. And now all of a sudden you've got a whole army of them praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. So if you take that line that most of us know, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors, you put that now in the context of the, the actual setting, it's like, wow, God's saying something here. This is an announcement. Like, this is an announcement that the creator of the universe is coming in to our story and doing it in such a way. And then, of course, who he says it to. The shepherds are nobodies in that society. And he's going to reveal himself that way. So they bring him, they, they find him down in Bethlehem, they go to check it out, they find Jesus in the manger, of course the manger, again, right, not a very good situation, and after the visit, they go into town, they tell everybody. So the real story has a lot of messy details about it. The real story is much more compelling, again, than just the cartoony version that we have of the story. Because God is saying, if we don't let that tension stand in the story, we don't let those details come out, I think we're going to miss the story of what God is saying about himself. The very, very first things about Jesus defined his whole life and ministry because they were a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus. His life, every detail of it, was a fulfillment of that role because the scandal, the embarrassment, the arduous, dangerous trip that his parents had to take. Everything. Everything. And I just, I wonder, with no help or support, nothing, like, who is it that's going to put himself into that position? Just as a reminder, who who is it that came and was born in Bethlehem? It's God himself. It's creator God. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That's who's being born into that scene. And what we see in the New Testament, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul quotes one of the most famous uh, Christian poems probably going around at that time. A lot of scholars believe this is not original to Paul, but that this was a poem that was going around that really spoke to who Jesus Christ is. So he's quoting this in the letter to the church in Philippi. And he says this, Who came into that scene? What was Christ Jesus? who existing in the form of God, 
did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. So yes, he is God. He has equality with God. But because of us, he didn't think that that was something he needed to cling to. Instead, it was something he gave up, Paul says. He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Right? Isaiah 53, the details of the Christmas story. And he took on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So there's a real weight to the Christmas story. And if we don't allow all of that to kind of wash over us when we think of this story, we miss the reason, we miss the purpose, we miss the power of the story, of the mission. Because what would compel the creator of the universe, the one that's equal with God, what would compel him to the point of death, even death on a cross? Why would he do that? What would drive him to ultimately his death? Love. So let's look. Jesus' words. He's preparing. John 15, he's preparing his guys for his death. Upper room, right? Famous Last Supper meal. He's up there talking to his disciples about what is next. It's going to be very difficult for them. After Jesus gets arrested, from that point on, all chaos, all the time for the disciples. It's just going to be craziness for them because there's going to be persecution to the point of death for every single one of the disciples. So he's preparing them for what they're about to experience. So in this, this is what Jesus does to encapsulate his mission and this encouragement for his disciples. He says, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. So if you keep my commands, he's repeating what he just got done saying, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And this verse, it just strikes me. Like, try to put yourself in this position. The disciples don't really know what's going on. Right? They're still not 100% sure what's happening. They don't understand, like Jesus did, that his birth was for what's about to happen. And it's like they're, they've been missing the point all along. And now he's about to say them, say this to them in verse 12. And I just wonder, imagine looking around at the fellow disciples as Jesus says these words. In verse 12, he says, This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. So here's Jesus with his best friends, and he's saying, look around, disciples. I want you to love one another just like I have loved you. Because there's no greater love than this, what I'm about to do, to lay my life down for my friends. That was such a personal message for them. And still, even at this point, they're not 100% sure what's happening. But Jesus is saying, look, just like in Luke 24, we started off with, the whole reason I came here was to lay my life down. That's, that's the Christmas story, and there's a weight to it that we need to allow to sit there. But it was love. In this short passage here, there's like ten mentions of love. That's what compelled him to do that willingly. It's not very kingly, though. You know, but he came to show us who God is and what God is like. That, that's what Jesus accomplished in the Christmas story, because ultimately love came in its perfect form. And I want you to consider this, too, as part of the Christmas story. Like, think about this next slide. Love compelled God to go to war for you. Have you. Do you ever think about that with a Christmas story? 
that's a, that's a central detail of the Christmas story as Jesus understands it. That God came here solely to go to war for your soul. That you see God that way, because that's the Christmas story. That's what God is revealing, and that all those gritty, dirty details, all the lowly, nobody cares about him details of his birth, was setting a tone for who he is. It's painting a picture of what God is like. And a lot of people don't have a very good view of God. They, they have a lot of things that they feel because what life has done to them, what they see around the world. And yet Jesus said, but this is proof positive that I'm going to go to war for you. For you. You. Me. It's, it's a salvation thing. It's heaven and hell thing. It's like, this is real. This is like, this is why I'm here. This is what I'm going to do. Because this is what, in the next verse here, and First John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is a message they didn't understand when Jesus came. That that's what he was here to do. The Christmas story is this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And then you can put it at the end of there, for me. Make that personal. Christ came here. Christ was born the way that he was so that he could destroy the work of the devil for me. Like, that's, that's a different way of looking at the Christmas story. But don't stop there, though. Because here's where we can get off. We can know details about the Christmas story. We can know the, like what compelled him to do that. Who came? Well, it was God that came, and he did it because of love. But there's a demand on your life. If you are here today, if you're watching today, and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, that means something for you. So here's what John says, one of Jesus' closest friends. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another. Because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So what John is saying is that the love of Jesus demands something from us. If you say you're a follower, you need to love. Now again, we misunderstand, especially in America, what love is. You know, it's erotic love. It's romantic love. Like, that's, that's what we, it's, you know, Valentine's Day. They've already got Valentine's Day stuff up. Blah. Verse 9. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. This is a powerful love. It results in life through Him. It's proof of who God is. Love consists in this. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. It sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Right? Destroy the works of the devil. Near, dear friends, if God loved us in this way, here's the demand. We also must love one another. We must. We must. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us, and His love is made complete in us. What he's saying, what John is arguing, and again, this John was in the upper room. When Jesus is saying these things in John 15 earlier that we read, he's sitting there listening to it. And so he's saying, look, this is what I've learned from Jesus, is that this stuff is transformative. It demands something of us. It is fundamentally going to change who you are if you're following Jesus. That's the demand. That's the high calling that is the Christmas story. It's not just the baby in the manger, but it's the God who came to be born in the manger to destroy the works of the devil for you. That God, the creator of the universe, went to war for your soul. There's a, again, there's a weight and a heaviness to the details of the Christmas story. And it goes, and it goes somewhere, right? It's not just, oh, wow, that's really cool. But no, no, no. If you've accepted his gift, 
That's what, that's what Christmas gift is, is eternal salvation. If you've accepted that, man, there's a demand now in your life in the way that you reflect that love. We must. We must, he says, do these things. And before I close, I want to, well, as I close, I want to clarify about Jesus and real love. Jesus is the real picture of real love. Because love, as we see in Jesus, is messy. It's courageous. It's a little dangerous. It's sacrificial. Like, these are the things that love does. Love goes to war on someone's behalf. Love protects. Love is not just romance. It's not just erotic. Love is powerful. And it's what compelled God to go to war on your behalf. So those are the things that we see. And just think about any relationship that you would say there's love in, or any kind of relationship. It's going to be messy, but you probably hope that other person is going to be courageous. You probably hope they're going to be sacrificial, right? It's going to be a little dangerous because you're making yourself vulnerable. You're going to hopefully be encouraged by that person and protected and corrected, and you hope that they're going to tell you the truth, even if you don't want to hear it. You hope, right? Those are the people that are closest in your life that you know they're going to tell you the truth. Why? Because they love you enough to tell you the truth. Love is not just touchy-feely, romance, like huggy. No, it's not any of that. Love is powerful. So I'll close with this. Again, making it personal. What do you need to let go of this Christmas? It could be that scene, that picture, that's sterile and unoffensive and unaffected. That picture of Christmas has nothing to do with the Christmas story. Maybe we need to let go of that and realize that it's actually a very messy, painful story, and it says something about your Creator and your Savior named Jesus Christ. Because here's what I know. Famous little song. Jesus loved me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That love is transformative. That love is the line in the sand in all of humanity. This love is powerful. And again, it's that love there that drove God to go to war for your soul. That's a much more compelling Christmas story. It's powerful because of the weight of it and the details of it. So let's not whitewash it. Let's not push those things away. Let's, let's let those things, those awkward details, settle in because that's what's transformative. And it says something about God. Let those details sit there because it says something about who He is and what He's like. Let me close. So, Lord, we thank you for today, and I thank you so much for the real story of Christmas. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, myself included, Lord, to, to make sure I keep my eyes on the, the real story. And it's awkward and everything else that goes with it, Lord, but it says something about you and that Isaiah 53 fulfillment of the suffering servant right from the beginning, Lord, right from the very beginning of your story here on earth. It was about suffering and about people not caring about you. I mean, the creator of the universe, Lord. But then that announcement with those angels would help us to just appreciate, slow down, and appreciate the real meaning of Christmas, Lord. Thank you for all the other fun stuff, Lord, but help us keep our hearts oriented toward you this Christmas season. And I pray that in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, that's all we got. Love you guys. Have a great week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at quaybogchurch.org. Have a blessed week.